Good morning, Grace. My name is Jason. I'll be opening God's Word for us today. We're continuing to work through 1 Corinthians. So if you want to open your Bible, we will start there. We are in 1 Corinthians 3 now. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles in the back. And if you were to raise your hand, I'm sure someone could grab one or you could walk back and grab one yourself. Um, Particularly as we're working through these books of the Bible, it's so nice to read them together in our reflection service, read them before usually we get them preached, and think about them, and then reflect upon them. Um, what we're trying to do is, is, is very deliberately textually based from the Scripture itself. <clears throat> so 1 Corinthians 3. Today we are in, starting in verse 1 through 9, we're going to see... Uh, the same problem that Paul's been talking about since the first of this book, the divisions in the church. And then we see him transition and start to talk a little bit about the gospel as a solution to that specific problem, which is the overarching category for what happens throughout the book. Problem, how the gospel resolves that problem. So we're going to read, and we're going to pray that we get help from the Lord and from the Spirit, because if he doesn't show up, then all we're doing is in vain anyway. So... 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are, not, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we come with a simple prayer of help. Help us to not only intellectually understand what's being said here, but uh, remove from our hearts any uh, roadblocks to uh, applying or uh, loving your word uh, so that you could, through the Spirit, take this from your word on the page of a book and place them directly into our hearts to affect that change in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to start at the end of this passage. The passage ends with a metaphor of a field. And Paul's talking about the leaders. The leaders are planters and waterers of the field. And then he goes on to say, you, the people, you are a field. This is an agricultural metaphor, right? It probably works best in an agrarian society. My guess is not many of you drove past a field on your way to church this morning. Unless it was like something got torn down and you're waiting for a month later or something to get built back up. But not many of us drove past fields where something has been sown and been watered and waiting for a harvest to come. And we might be prone to even think, oh, 
God, is this just evidence that the Bible's outdated? This, this sort of farming, or maybe it's just not for us city folk, like all those people, in, I'm from Oklahoma, so we can make fun of, oh, all those Okies in Oklahoma, can make sense to them because they drove past fields, but we didn't drive past fields. But our culture's full of agricultural-based ideas and wordings, right? Some people say, well, he needed to go sow his wild oats. I'm tired, I'm gonna hit the hay. I've been so busy, I've been running around with my, like a chicken with his head cut off. That's gross. I grew up on a farm. I never saw a chicken run around with his head cut off. Not many of us have probably even seen that, but we kind of know what it means. But probably the agrarian ag terminology that we hear most in our culture, in my opinion, or at least I hear it all the time, is the idea of branding. Right? So the history of a brand is a piece of iron that's heated up and you brand some sort of livestock, usually cow, with it. And then particularly in the old days when there was sort of free rain, so all the cattle would go eat in the, the pasture together and then they would round them all up and they would separate them out by the brand. The cattle with this sort of brand belong to this owner and they need to be put over here. And the cattle with this sort of brand belong to this owner and they need to be separated out. But now even I... When I hear the word brand, I don't think of that at all. Like you guys, I think of marketing, right? How does this business brand themselves? How do they communicate their message? How do they create in you a, a uh, subconscious understanding that their product is better than their competitors even when it's probably not? It's probably some marketing people in the room I just offended, but... Isn't that kind of what branding is? And it doesn't just stop with business, right? It, right now, personal branding is everything. I went into a, 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 a hole on the internet that I didn't glean that much from of how to brand yourself on social marketing, right? It's a big deal right now. You got to think about everything you put on Instagram, everything you put on Facebook, everything you put on, there's all, the, I don't know what the new ones are, but whatever the new ones are. Right? You're, you're self-selecting. Like, I want to put this up so people think I'm sporty, but if I put too much sporty stuff up, they'll think I'm too sporty, so i got to put this up to make them think I'm feminine and girly. Because I want to be girly sporty. <laughs> or I want to put this up so people think I'm smart, but if I put too much stuff up like that, people think I'm too smart, I'm not relatable, and I'm so smart that I know that I don't want to be too smart, so I'm going to be put this up to kind of a stupid joke to make them think I'm not too smart. Right? There's, it's all branding. Self-branding. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just trying to say this is the world that we live in. And churches do this. Some churches think a lot more about it than others, but really every church in some way has to think through what are we as a church? How are we going to communicate what we are as a church? And I want us to use that as we go back into this church. The Corinthian church is being very deliberate about their brand, what it is they're communicating to their culture. It's actually what caused Paul to write this letter. What do we know? And, we, and every single person who's introduced this book has really helped us with this. What we know about this church is that they want people to think of themselves as wise, right? Eloquent. Probably a really good summary of it is in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul says, um, I didn't come to preach with words of eloquent wisdom. That feels like the brand of this church. We're the church full of eloquent wisdom. 
The word that kept coming to my mind as I was thinking about this is how, how are the Corinthians trying to communicate what they were? I think that they would have landed on the word clever. We're a clever church. Now, the interesting thing about being clever in their culture is that's exactly what their culture would have wanted them to be. Right? I think Moyer particularly helped us with this, thinking about that this was a, this was a culture that would build statues to the people who spoke like the gods. And so there's this, this strong and deliberate intentionality to say, we want to be what our culture wants us to be. Do you see how it was not at all countercultural? There was nothing countercultural about it. If anything, what they were trying to do is look like the culture so that they would be approved by the culture. And we're going to see Paul's going to hit them right there. But before we get to that, let's just pause. Do we do that? Maybe as a group church, but maybe even the best way to think about it is as individuals. Right? Do, we, do we worry too much? Do we have our thoughts too saturated? And our culture may be a very different culture. Maybe the culture that we live in isn't, doesn't value cleverness. Maybe it values attractiveness or um, humor. That's probably one I always try to run towards or whatever else it is. And we spend too much of our time sort of allowing this cultural thought process to impact the way we're communicating ourselves and the way we're interacting with people rather than letting scripture do that for us. And that way we're exactly like this church. Church and the Corinthians were not allowing divine revelation to play the role on how it is that they should be doing ministry and building their church and communicating to the outside world. And that's why Paul has to come to them in this particular occasion and say, you're not doing that. So it'd be, it'd be helpful for us to have our own antenna. What areas are, uh, am I personally allowing my culture to emphasize and create in me a desire to, yeah, that's who I want to be, and maybe at times I'm rejecting or ignoring clear teachings of the scripture. So Paul comes in this letter. He says, okay, your brand is eloquent words of wisdom. Your brand is being clever. But really, Paul says, no, there's really two things that are true of you. The first is you're immature. So we're going to see that in verses 1 through 4. The second thing that's true of you is that you're man-centered rather than God-centered. So we'll take these one at a time. We'll make some application at the end. The first one, Paul's claim for these Christians to be immature Christians Think about it. If you prided yourself on being wise, what could be a more offensive thing to be called than immature? You think you guys are so wise, but really what you lack is maturity. And that's what the passage says, right? In the first four, it says, first verse one, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. You are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. You are still in the flesh. And later on he says, are you not being merely human? You're behaving merely in a human way. You're not wise. You're fleshly. You're carnal. You're merely being human. And there's some complexity that's introduced into the book at this point. Eric last week in chapter 2 emphasized the exact same thing that Paul emphasizes and that there's, there's two kinds of people. There's spiritual people and natural people. Super clear. Which one are you? 
all of a sudden, some complexity gets introduced that there's some category in between the two here, right? They're clearly spiritual on some hand. He calls them brothers in verse 1. He's writing to the church. So they're clearly spiritual in some way, but they still have some persisting human, fleshly, natural parts within them. They're not growing to full maturity. So there's some complexity here. And it's good for us to recognize this is pretty common in the scriptures, right? We get these sort of clear-cut distinctions, and then sometimes there's complexities that go on in between these. I found helpful a comment uh, from uh, a a commentator who I really enjoy named Tom Schreiner, and he writes in a a newer commentary from the Tyndale series. On this exact issue, here's what he says. The Christian life is complex. Paul does not believe someone can live all his or her life in what is popularly called a carnal Christian. So Tom Schreiner is saying, Paul, he thinks, Paul does not believe you can live your whole life as a carnal Christian. At the same time, the lives of believers have times of progress and times of regress. Therefore, believers must continue to live according to the Spirit. The point being, there's, there's a complexity here. These, these Christians find themselves in this sort of in-the-middle stage, right? That, that they're, they're not fully mature believers. They're having times of regress and progress. And I think we all have that as well. That's part of our life. But the problem here that Paul's pointing out is they should have been more mature at this stage than they currently are. Babies are supposed to drink milk, Right? Babies are supposed to eat baby food. You don't feed a baby sirloin. Wouldn't go too well. But then at some point, the babies move into solid food. And so in the first verse, you see Paul, I don't think he's yet. He said, when I first came to you, I couldn't really address you as mature Christians. I had to feed you baby food. And you get a sense of, well, that's sort of to be expected, right? It was a brand new church, a bunch of brand new baby Christians. That's all you really could expect for them. But you were people of the flesh, you were infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. But I think at the end of chapter 2 is where he starts to really, you feel his frustration. And even now you are not yet ready. You feel the switch? Yeah, 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 you guys were babies. That's okay. And when you're babies, you drink milk, and that's okay. But you're still babies. Even now, you're not ready for it. And that's the problem. There should have been growth and maturity, but there's not. And once again, these people would have thought, well, we're very mature, Paul. We're more sophisticated than you are. We are more eloquent speakers than you are. That's the whole thing that they seem to have a problem with. It comes up in 2 Corinthians as well. So what is this meat, this uh, solid food and milk thing, right? What's going on here? Because Paul says, I had to feed you this milk, and not the solid food, you weren't ready for it, but you're still not ready for the solid food. And in my mind, before looking at this passage and spending much time with it, I think that I tended to intellectualize the differentiation between the milk and the solid food. In other words, I tended, before looking at it, to think of it primarily as sort of mental content, grasping and understanding, something like that, right? So maybe, for example, maybe I thought of this as a doctrinal thing. Well, there's certain doctrines that are good for you as you become a Christian, and then you sort of you know, move on to, to different doctrines as you progress. 
And there's something like that going on that gets picked up in Hebrews, a little similar idea, but it can't be fully that, or otherwise we get a really strange problem with the gospel. Because the primary doctrine that's good for the baby Christian is the gospel. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and trust in him. Well, isn't that the central thing that's important no matter how mature you are in Christ? Repent of your sins, believe the gospel, and continue to walk in faith. And so I don't think it's primarily doctrinal. I don't think it's primarily intellectual. I don't think he's saying, you guys were stupid back then and, and, and you should be smarter now and you're not smarter. It's sort of where the metaphor breaks down. A baby grows in intellect. A baby gets more intelligent. And I think that's not what's going on here. He's not saying this is an intellectual problem. You should be reading um, multi-volume works of systematic theology by now, but you're not. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think it's a moral or an ethical thing. You should be doing X, Y, and Z. You should be feeding people. You should be working at food bank. You should be evangelizing X amount of time, and you're not. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what's happening, and it's, it's, it's actually in the passage itself, is something really different. So what is the evidence that Paul gives us for why he claims that they're still milk-drinking Christians instead of solid-food Christians? Well, look at verse 3. It says, you're still of the flesh. How does he know that? For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What does Paul see the problem? It's not intellectual. It's not doctrinal. It's, to summarize it, I think really what it is, it's pride. What's the evidence? It's jealousy strife. Divisions is the word that we saw in 1 Corinthians 1. There's divisions within the church. There's jealousy within the church. And the divisions he's talking about right now specifically have to do with sort of picking your favorite guru and saying, my guru is better than your guru, and therefore I'm a little bit better than you are. Right? Isn't that how that one works? Right? I'm an Apollos person. I like Apollos better. You like Paul, and Apollos is better than Paul, and therefore I'm better than you are. Right? It, it, it always sort of comes back down to a, a personal level. It's not, I'm, it's not just merely, I'm proud of my favorite pastor and you're proud of your favorite pastor. There's, there's something in, in going on inside our own hearts there as well. And so Paul says, this division, he actually calls it strife here. Right? So it's not merely a sort of, oh, I have a preference for this guy and you have a preference. There's, there's obviously some sort of strife. There's, there's frustration, maybe even anger within this body of Christ based upon this issue. And Paul's saying, see that strife. See that jealousy. See that anger in your hearts. See that pride. That's the proof that you're not mature. That the gospel is not washed down through you into a humble state to the point that you would be able to recognize these things, right? That there's still some pride happening there. It's actually one of the things that makes this sort of intellectual, if we intellectualize it, there's potentially even a problem of becoming more prideful because then we're proud of the intellectual content that we may understand about the gospel. Let's use an example. And when I thought about this example, I was going to pick on seminary students because we always have a few around and we have a lot of seminary professors. And I thought, now I'll just pick on myself because I once was a seminary student. Seminary students, and really anyone who studies theology, whether it's technically in a seminary or not, can enter what we can call, or what's popularly and famously called, a cage stage. 
Anyone heard of the cage stage of theology studies? The cage stage means you get so interested in theological doctrines and nuances and little bit of, you know, all of the sort of interesting stuff that you are no good to anyone and we should just throw you in a cage for a while. And it's true. So for me, I was at a state university. I was at Oklahoma State University. And I, I found theology and I fell in love with theology. And I didn't have any friends who were sort of theologians or thinking about these things. So I was sort of on an island by myself. So I was, and this was, this was like before the internet. You couldn't just get on and find stuff. You actually had to like find magazines and journals and have them sent. Like they actually used to have them. I don't know if you guys know what the mail is, but they'd mail things to your house. <laughs> And you'd get them and you'd read them. And so, and so I had to work really hard to get these theological things to read and go to the library, which my, it wasn't a theological library. So I, and, and so I, I was reading all this stuff and I got so interested in it. But what ended up happening is I got useless to the faith. And I'm gonna, I, I have to say some, some things that, are, that I wish I didn't have to say. One of them is my senior year, I went from being a leader of our Campus Crusade for Christ in a large state university to I became so interested in my own theological nuances that I became convinced that I had picked up on some sort of theological problems with Campus Crusade for Christ and I need to remove myself from that. Can you believe that? I mean, Campus Crusade is like one of the most successful and important evangelical groups in the world. And here's a 20-year-old punk who thinks he's become so enlightened and he's become so articulate and so intelligent that I think I need to remove myself from leadership from Campus Crusade. I actually met my Campus Crusade leader a couple of years ago and I apologized to him about this. And it was very refreshing. He didn't even remember it. I don't think Campus Crusade went down whenever I stepped out. I thought maybe they had collapsed, but apparently they're still going strong. So the cage stage of theological education means I would rather have at that moment ran into someone and had a theological debate about the end times or one particular passage or different kinds of grace than I would have had to have shared the gospel with somebody. I, I don't like even to say it, but it's certainly true of me and it's true of others as well. And that, when I look at this passage, what was I? I was a milk-drinking Christian. Now contrast that with someone, and there's so many people like this, uh, but it's, it's almost like, I wish if we could just, there was a nameless person mentioned, I think by Randy, at the, originally, of the, the lady who set the dishes, right, for the women's Bible study, right? There's, there's people like that, but the person I want to contrast me at 20 with is Corey Tin Boom. Corey Tin Boom is a godly, was a godly, well, she's dead now, right? I'm sure of it. Okay, thank you. When I state facts and so. She survived World War II, was an incredible believer, and my, one of my seminary professors, either he met her or a friend of his met her, but here was the description that came of Corey Ten Boom. When we met her, grace dripped off of her. That's a, that's a solid food Christian, right? So you've got a milk-drinking Christian, Jason Oaks at 20, who's very prideful has a lot of intelligence, has a lot of ability to understand and read these things and sort of looking for someone to chop it up with. And then here's someone who's had an entire lifetime of applying the gospel in very hard circumstances to the point that she became an embodiment for forgiveness, even to the point of forgiving torturers, literal torturers. That's the difference between a milk-drinking Christian. That's what Paul's saying you guys haven't gotten there yet. You guys are still in your pride and your jealousy and your strife and you're not yet ready. 
One of the commentators says, pride causes us to be incapable of digesting the solid food of the gospel. I want to say that again. It might be the, the best thing I read. Pride makes us incapable of digesting the solid food of the gospel. Why? Well, because the gospel is offensive to proud people. The gospel says you're nothing. The gospel says all you bring is sin. The gospel says your only hope is outside of you. You want righteousness? The only chance you have of righteousness is alien. It's outside. It's otherworldly. It's not within you. It's something that has to come to you to rescue you. And our pride, and I am convinced that each of us in our natural state are incredibly prideful. And even as we become Christians, we're still on this same confusing path that we see this group of believers here on, and that we still have little deep, dark places in our hearts. And I know I still have them as well, and God's revealing them to me regularly, and hopefully more regularly than he is, of places of pride, places of superiority. Jan Buck and I were laughing last Sunday about areas of our pride, and it's better to laugh than cry, right? Because it's going to be one or the other. Because you just recognize, even when you've lived a Christian life, as long as she has, you fought for faith as long as she has, you still have this inward aspect of pride, so I think that just to sort of land this, I think what Paul's saying here is not, okay, if you've been a Christian long enough and you've read the Bible enough and you've led enough, you're a mature Christian. And if you kind of haven't been a Christian very long and you haven't read the Bible very much or maybe been a Christian a long time but you don't really follow Jesus very much, you're an immature Christian. I think he's sort of shuffling the deck on that. And he's saying, you know what? You could have pride that's resisting the solid food of the gospel and be someone who reads your Bible every day. You could be a milk-drinking Christian and read your Bible every day. You could be a milk-drinking Christian and lead a grace group. You could be a milk-drinking Christian and preach from this pulpit. You could be a milk-drinking Christian and do all kinds of things, and maybe even most people around you won't even recognize it about yourself because you were able to camouflage it or something like that. But at the end of the day, what Paul's really trying to say is, is pride getting in the way of you digesting that grace that you know in your head to the point that it just drips off of you? And if so, ask for help. Ask the Spirit to help. Ask your neighbors to help. Ask your, your, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Point these things out. So the first thing Paul's pointing out here is this. You're immature. You think you're wise, but you're immature. The second thing is, as another aspect of your immaturity, and you're branding yourself as wise, sophisticated, clever people, you're also valuing, overvaluing the human servants, which is causing you to, whether deliberately or un, not deliberately, undervalue the role that God has played. So that's verse 5, 5 through 9. So he's talking about these divisions. You guys are sort of picking your favorite guru. Who's your sage on the stage that you're going to listen to all the time? And you're going to say, that's my person. Well, what's the problem with that? Paul says, well, ultimately, he's going to knock that down. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Very quickly, servants through whom you believed. Well, we look through this passage and we see how Paul talks about himself and this co-leader Apollos and, and minimizes their role and expands the glory given to God. What are we? We're just servants. As the Lord has assigned, right? So God's the one doing the work. I planted, Apollos watered. So he 
Neither he who works or plants or waters is anything, right? There, there he's, he's taking on sort of a hyperbolic statement. Those of us who do work are nothing. Paul and Apollos are nothing. He's going to come back around and sort of say, ah, you might have misunderstood that a little bit in verse 8. It says, he who plants and waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So it's not as if they're nothing. They will receive their labor. They're doing God's work. They're doing what God's assigned them to do. But the primary point is about God. The Lord assigns each in verse 5. God gave the growth in verse 6. Verse 7, only God gives the growth to the extent that the workers are God's workers and the people are God's field. You see that? You see the sort of minimizing the role of the human servants, maximizing the God-centeredness to say, hey, God's the one that we have to give credit for. God's the one who's ultimately responsible for any good work that happens. It seems, I was thinking about this week, it's a funny thing to need to be reminded of that. But don't I need to be reminded of that? In other words, as a Christian, I shouldn't have to be reminded of that. I should just get it. Oh, yeah, to God be all glory all the time. I should just get it, but I don't. Because I want to take glory. I want to give other people glory. I don't know. I just, there's something innate in each of us that wants to get in the way of that. It makes that more difficult than it is so that we have to be reminded God's the one who gives the growth. The word servant here, who's, who's Paul and Apollos? They're just servants, right? The word servant, in one application in the original, is a, a servant who serves tables. So allow me to create a mental image for us. that The people that fill this platform are really just servants in the same way. So imagine you're going to your favorite place to eat, and it's TGI Fridays. You love TGI Fridays. You're pulling in. And you pull up and you walk in the door and there's Elder Jackson standing up there and he says, hey, how many's in your party? Let me get your table ready for you. Then you look in there and Randy's cleaning off all the dishes from the table and trying to get them into the back real quick. And Dr. Moyer Hubbard, New Testament professor, is back there washing the dishes. You sit at your table and Kenny walks up and says, hey guys, how's it going? Can I get some jalapeno poppers going for you? (laughs) How about an awesome blossom? Extra awesome. You're sitting there, you're enjoying your meal. Eric Taunas comes by and says, can I refresh these beverages for you? My pleasure, right? And then at the end of this remarkable night, they're all gathered around and the elders and the grace group leaders and the core group leaders and the youthers, and they're all wearing those ridiculous bands that TJ Freddy's with all the st- things on them and they've got a molten lava cake with a candle and they're singing, happy, happy birthday, happy, happy, hey, hope you like this cake or whatever it is they sing. It's sort of a ridiculous mental image, but that's exactly the way that Paul is wanting us to understand these people that were so prone and tempted to over-esteeming. They're just doing what God's assigned them. They're doing the work that God's given them to do. And God is the one who's successfully provided this work for them. Even to the point that he says, they're nothing. Neither he who plants nor waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It reminds me of how he starts off chapter two when he says, when I came to you, I claimed to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. They're both sort of hyperbolic language, right? When Paul says, when I first came to you, I claimed to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Where are you standing? I, Paul, I don't know. I only know Christ and him crucified. What'd you have for breakfast? I don't know. 
Christ and him crucified, right? He, he knew more than just Christ and him crucified. But what's his point? His point is that that was the thing that was on his heart. I want to emphasize Christ and him crucified. I want to emphasize the fact that God is the one who does the work to the point that I will say that Paul and Apollos are nothing. We're not accomplishing, we're not providing, we're not doing anything in comparison to the work that the Lord is doing. So Paul is saying you're immature, you are raising the role of humans and therefore devaluing the role that God is playing. And if you want to become a mature Christian, if you want to move on to the solid food, this is what you need to do. You need to fight the pride that you find within you so that you can properly digest the solid food from the gospel so that it can come into you and drip off of you so that you drip grace. Is there anything that we all know we cannot accomplish on our own? Right? We cannot do that by ourselves. We can't set the goal. It can't be a a New Year's resolution, drip grace. Probably not going to win that one. Right? What we can do is put ourselves in positions. We can create opportunities for humility. We can put ourselves in a position where we're fighting actively our own pride when we see it so that we can be aware of what's happening. So the branding that this church, the Corinthian church, was walking into is they wanted to be clever with eloquent words of wisdom. And I love the way, I just like the logic of this passage, right? Here's a problem. You guys are trying to be too clever, and because of that, you're not mature. And because you're not mature, there's a lot of jealousy and strife. Here's the solution. Here's the antidote. God. You see it? God-centered. Remind yourself of what God has done. Remind yourself of the gospel. It's not, hey, there's a lot of jealousy and strife. Maybe we should do a group therapy session. Not to undermine the role that those things can be helpful, but ultimately it's the gospel. And we're going to see this play out all the way through the book, right? There's sexual morality, the gospel. There's other issues within worship, the gospel. And it gives us this incredible blueprint for our own lives. Because our culture isn't all that similar to this one. And maybe we're not all that tempted to try to become eloquent speakers. But whatever it is that our culture is tempting us to do, what we need to do is to make God as big as he is and embrace the gospel and try to see our own pride within us so that we can properly digest this food of the gospel so that it comes into us and all the way through us. So that we can be like Paul and say, you know what, I don't want to... I don't want to try to be like my culture. Instead, I want to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. That I don't want to try to be what my culture wants me to be. Instead, I'm happy to be considered by my culture a fool for Christ. That's the terminology Paul uses in chapter 1 and 2. So I'm going to give three questions to apply and then a final thought. In the first service, I threw everyone off. I said I was going to do four, and I only did three, and people came up and said, what was the fourth? I said, there wasn't four, but so I cleaned it up. Three applicational questions. Do you allow your culture to inform your thoughts more than the divine revelation of Scripture? Your thoughts, 
your presentation of yourself, who you want to be, who you claim to be, who you make yourself out to be? Do you allow the water that we're swimming in to inform that more than God's word? Now, it's a hard thing to separate, but we should certainly be at the task of trying to separate it. That's the first one. The second one is, do you have pride that's actively playing defense within you against the solid food of the gospel? Do you have pride that's not allowing you to digest grace to the point that you are a gracious person? It's funny, isn't it? Some people that write theological treatises on grace might be the least gracious people. Often they're not. I've met, uh, our church is full of people who have written incredible works who are incredibly kind and gracious people. But the stories abound of the opposite being true. And so do we have pride not allowing us to digest this solid food? And thirdly, straight out of the passage as well, do you think too highly of human leaders and maybe yourself? Our church is an interesting place in that we don't have sort of the one person who's up here 95% of the time preaching. So you might think that that could cause us to have a little bit less likely to sort of place too much pride in that one person. Whereas the standard church with, with the one person who does all of the preaching might be a little bit more tempted to do that. But our church, we, because we have so many people coming out of the pulpit and Rob Lister's coming in next week and whatever else, that you would think on the one hand that might make us less likely to do this, but on the other hand it might make us more likely to. It's like, oh, who's preaching this Sunday? Oh, excellent. Good news. Whatever you think on the opposite. I don't want to be negative, but, right? That because it gets, because there's other people, there could even be a temptation within your own heart. I don't think it's anything in the church as a whole, but it might be in your heart, sort of a thinking too highly of one leader, overvaluing one leader over the other. So those are three applicational questions. We're going to have a prayer team. They will come up. You can pray with them about those things or just with yourself. Take it to your grace group. Here's the antidote of any of those things is the same one Paul gives. Look to God. Center your thoughts on God. Center your thoughts on the gospel, on your need of the gospel, on your inability to fully believe the gospel without God's help on your inability to fully live out the gospel apart from the Spirit at work in you. To the point that we can be not merely milk-drinking Christians who know a lot about grace, but solid-food Christians who live in grace. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. Um... My guess is the most prideful among us are the ones who, uh, to see that pride is the most difficult. And I found myself in that place many times. Uh, so I pray that the spirit would work, uh, that community could work, that we could fight pride in ourselves. God, there's people maybe here who don't even quite understand what we're talking about because they don't even really know Jesus. And I pray, God, that, uh, that this gospel would be so attractive to them that they would be drawn by, by uh, the spirit uh, to place their faith in Christ and become that babe that that infant that we talked about in this passage uh, that could start that journey. And we trust that you will do this work in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.